So last week we surveyed the book of Exodus, focusing on Exodus's main character, which is God himself. And we discovered five things about this God. Number one, that he is the God of history. Just as a human author writes a book, so God has written all of history beforehand. Number two, that he is the God of every nation. Pharaoh didn't think that he had to obey God because Egypt had their own gods. But in the end, Egypt was ruined, proving that there is no other God besides the Lord God. Number three, he is the God of the covenant. What is the plot line of God's story? It's the covenant of grace. All of history is an unfolding of God's promise to save the seed of of the woman through Christ. Number four, he is the God who sent his son, Jesus Christ. Exodus is a paradigm of the gospel. Every image in it, every redemption in it is a shadow of Christ's future coming. He is the true and better Passover lamb. He is the true and better Moses. And then number five, he is the God who does all things for his glory. Why did God raise up Pharaoh? Why did God pour out the ten plagues on Egypt so that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth? Now, this morning, um, the battle for Middle Earth begins. And um, if you remember during the Corinthian book, I uh, was quoting uh, Pilgrim's Progress a lot. That's because that's what I was reading at the time. Now I'm reading Lord of the Rings with my kids. So unfortunately, you'll probably have to hear a lot of Tolkien references. I apologize ahead of time. But actually, this isn't just a cute title. This actually is very descriptive of what's happening. Uh, how did that language of Middle Earth come to be? It's, it's quite simple, really. Hell, uh, heaven is above, hell is below, and the earth is in the middle. And that's where the battle is raging. And it's raging since God put enmity between the two seeds in the garden in Exodus 3. And and sorry, in Genesis 3. And Exodus is simply the next chapter in this battle, in this enmity. If we could read Hebrew, then we would see that the book of Exodus actually starts with the word and. So Genesis ends, and then Exodus begins with the word and. And this is how the battle continues. It's book two in God's battle to reclaim Middle Earth from the seed of the serpent. So in our story, Moses is the head of the army of the seed of the serpent. Pharaoh is the head of the army of the... Speaking too fast. Moses is the head of the army of the seed of the woman. Pharaoh is the head of the army of the seed of the serpent. So how does this chapter of battle begin? What actually begins right here in these first seven verses. And that should immediately tell us how crucial these opening verses are. These verses tell us what the first shot fired was. What caused the seed of the serpent to attack the seed of the woman? Israel was fulfilling the cultural mandate. Verse 7 says that they were being fruitful, they were multiplying, they were filling the land. 
So here's our big idea this morning. God's people are to be fruitful, multiply, and exercise dominion over the earth. And this is what the enemy hates the most. So let's begin then with our doctrine. If you look down at verse 1, you'll see that Moses, who is our author, Mark 12, 26, he throws us right into the middle of the story. He, he says in verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. So like any epic tale, um, we are just thrown right into the middle of the story. Remember when the first Star Wars came out? Probably not since most of you probably weren't born. But it's like chapter 4, the new hope. The words scroll up on the screen and you're right into the middle of the story. And you have to wait to get the details of the story until the story unpacks, right? Well, I'm going to give you a little background to what these first few verses mean. So this takes place in the mid-15th um, century B.C. It's exactly 430 years after God made this covenant. Um, uh, excuse me. At the end of this book, it's exactly 430 years after God made his covenant with Abraham, Galatians 3.17. In these opening verses, we see the 12 sons of Israel. Um, those are the 12 patriarchs, as the New Testament calls them. They're grandsons of Abraham. So in the lineage of the promised seed, we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whom God renamed Israel. And Jacob, or Israel, was the father of the 12. Those are the men listed in verses 2 through 3. So in introducing this family here, Moses is actually telling us the most important thing that's happening in the ancient world at this time. I know some of you wish that you had studied history better. I, I wish the same thing. I wish I knew the, the timeline in ancient history to know what was the most important thing happening of the world at each time. This was the most important thing happening in the world this time because it was this family through whom the child, the promised seed, would come and be a blessing to all the nations on the earth, Genesis twenty two eighteen. So, how did this family end up in Egypt? Well, let me give you two explanations. First, uh, the human explanation. Back in Genesis, we discover that Jacob loved his son Joseph more than his other two brothers. And because of this, his 11 brothers were envious and so they sold Joseph into slavery. They told their father that he had been killed by a wild beast. Joseph then came to uh, be a slave to a man named Potiphar in Genesis 39. Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph to sleep with her. And when he refused, she falsely accused him of rape. Potiphar then had him thrown into an Egyptian prison. But the Lord was with Joseph, and he rose in the ranks of the prison system just like he did in Potiphar's house. Years later, Potiphar had a, or Pharaoh had a dream that no one could interpret, and so Joseph was summoned because he happened to interpret a couple other guys' dreams who were in Pharaoh's court, and he gave the interpretation through the power of God that a great famine was coming. Genesis 41.30. So Pharaoh seeing the finger of God on 
Joseph, because nobody else could interpret his dream, he actually appointed Joseph to second in command in all of Egypt so that he could prepare Egypt for the famine. When the famine actually reached the land, it touched every part of it. And Joseph's brothers, the same who, came, uh, who sold him into slavery, came to Egypt asking for food. And you can see the attention immediately. But the end of the story is that the family ended up reconciling. All of Israel's children came to live with Joseph in the land of Egypt. So that's the human explanation of how this family ended there. But there's a divine explanation. When we get to the psalm book, the song book in our Bibles, the book of Psalms, we sing about how God is the one that drove them to Egypt. Psalm 105, verses 16 through 24. God is the one that summoned the famine, verse 16. God is the one that sent Joseph ahead of his brothers, verse 17. God is the one who raised Pharaoh, or Joseph up to the right hand of Pharaoh, verse 21. God is the one that brought Israel to Egypt, verse 23. And that was Joseph's own testimony of the matter. In Genesis 45, 5, he says to his brothers, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here to preserve life. Now, loved ones, this is going to continue to come up throughout the book of Exodus. And we need to continue to pay attention to it every time we see it. The Lord God is not merely the creator of all things. He is that. He is also the director of every man and woman and child's footsteps on planet Earth. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So you might be in a particular situation right now where explained in a human way, you can point to all of these decisions that were bad or all of these things that, that cascaded against you or this, this avalanche of pain and sorrow that has fallen upon you. But, but take heart, God is ultimately the author of your history. That's what Exodus is teaching us here, which means this. If you are in a crisis, do not be afraid. Fear not. God has appointed these things in his life so that in the end, you can give all praise and glory and honor to him for his mercy, for his power, for his wisdom in writing the perfect story for you. Verse 5. Verse 5 tells us that all of the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Now, this requires a little bit of explanation. Um, the 70 mentioned here are the heads of households. The heads of households. Uh, notice how verse 1 says, these are the names of the sons. And then the end of the verse says, each with his own household. This was... Moses' standard way of counting. He counts the heads of households, the 12 patriarchs. In Exodus, 20, in Exodus 12, 37, when he counts the people who leave Egypt, he counts the men, 600,000 men besides women and children. 
So 70 wasn't the total number of Israelites that were in Egypt here. You have to add the women and the children. But furthermore, um, we also have to count the household servants who would have also belonged to the covenant, uh, Genesis 17, 12 through 13. And this number of household servants would have been certainly in the thousands. Abraham alone had 318 fighting men in his household. It was a massive household, Genesis 14, 14, which means the number of his household was probably at least 1,000 once you count women and children. So what that means is that the number of people that actually settled in Egypt when Joseph brought over his family with all their servants, with all their herds, with all their flocks, was probably close to 10,000 people. Now, this fact will probably be important later, so just remember that. But for now, realize that at this point in the ancient world, there was only 10,000 people who belonged to God's covenant. 10,000 people in the whole world who belonged to God's covenant. And so now we're arriving at our key verse, verse 6. Moses, of course, reports that Joseph and all of that generation died. Then, verse 7, our key verse, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Your congregation, whenever you're reading the Bible and you, you see a phrase, you should ask the question, where else in the Bible does that phrase show up? Where else in the Bible does this phraseology show up? The people of Israel were fruitful. They multiplied. That's Genesis 1, right? Uh, uh, turn with me to Genesis 1, please. Uh, these words are actually from the very first commandment that God had given humanity. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, we read this. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Now this command is absolutely central to the book of Genesis. This is God's plan for for Middle Earth. So look with me elsewhere in the book of Genesis. Turn to chapter 9, verse 1. Immediately after the flood, which we just heard from Ben this morning, God commands Noah this in chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Turn to chapter 28, Verse 3, when Jacob leaves Isaac's home to go out into the world, these are the words that 
Isaac speaks to him, his last words, Genesis 28, 3, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. Turn to chapter 35, verse 11. God now commands Jacob, renewing the covenant with him that he made with Abraham and Isaac. 35.11, he says, And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. And then finally, turn to Genesis 48, verse 4. This is when they have arrived into Egypt, and Jacob, before he dies, he's recounting to his son Joseph what God told him. Genesis 48, 4. He said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Now, we've, we've seen this five times now. This mandate to be fruitful and to multiply and have dominion, um, theologians often call it the cultural mandate. So now turn back to Exodus 1-7. Because what we see here is the cultural mandate on steroids. Um, in Hebrew, in chapter 7 here, there's seven distinct Hebrew terms. I'll count them out for you. Look at the verse. But the people of Israel were fruitful, number one. They increased greatly, two. They multiplied, three. They grew, four. Exceedingly, five. Strong, six. So that the land was filled with them, seven. So there's a seven-fold increase. The number of seven in Scripture is the number of perfection. Israel grew to this perfect, this huge, massive population. They grew from a small town of 10,000 people to 2.5 million people. That's, that's bigger than the state of Idaho. That's more people than the people in the state of Idaho. If you're wondering how I got that number, Exodus 12, 37, it says that 600,000 men came out besides women and children. So just do the math. That's three quarters of a million people more than our state. In spite of all of the problems that Israel had that we're going to read about, they were obeying the cultural mandate and God was blessing them sevenfold for it. Dear congregation, this is why Egypt turned on them. Fulfilling the cultural mandate always brings persecution from the world. Always. And so we arrive then at our doctrine this morning. God's people are to be fruitful, multiply, and exercise dominion over the earth, and this is what the enemy hates most. So before I prove this, I just want to more carefully define what we mean by these terms, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. So let's turn back again to, to Genesis chapter 1, because what I want us to see is that God is doing two main things in the book of Genesis, or in, in Genesis chapter 1. He's creating, 
and he's cultivating. He's doing those two things, creating and cultivating. So in verse 1, God is creating the heavens and the earth. In verse 3, he's creating light. In verse 11, he's creating vegetation and so on. But God is also cultivating, meaning he's improving creation. He's refining it. He's developing it. So in verse 4, he separates light from darkness. In verse 9, he separates land from water. In verse 14, he separates day from night and so on. So in summary, God is doing two things in Genesis 1. He's creating clay out of nothing. And then he's cultivating that clay and shaping it and forming it and refining it. Now this is exactly what it means to carry out the cultural mandate on our end. So we are made in God's image. Part of what that means to be made in God's image is that we are to mirror him. We are to copy him. We are to reflect him, uh, what, what God is doing. And so just as God creates, we are to create. So verse 28 says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, now here, the principal thing that this means is it means to have babies. That's the principal thing that be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth means. So as Christians, uh, as much as God gives us grace, we ought to be baby-making machines. We ought to be. Um, but it doesn't just stop with creating, it, it moves to cultivating. Just as God cultivated, we must cultivate. Verse 28 says that we are to subdue and have dominion, meaning that we take those babies that, that God has given us through birth and we then cultivate their hearts in the, the covenant of grace and we, we shape them with his law and we encourage them with the, the covenant promises. Now, now, from this pulpit before, we've talked about how the cultural mandate extends the vocation. That's true. But what I'm insisting on here is that baby making and baby cultivating is the essential building block of the cultural mandate. Why is that? Well, two reasons. One, vocation is a mute thing if there are no babies, Right? And secondly, because when we're creating and cultivating um, the children of the next generation, we're actually giving birth to an alternative culture. We're giving birth to an alternative culture. In other words, if, if Christians are fruitful in the marriage bed and they cultivate their children's soul in the covenant of grace, discipling them, teaching them everything that Jesus commands, then a new culture is born. A new culture is brought forth. Families are the basic building blocks of culture. Family building is culture building. And that's what the enemy hates most. So now let me prove that second part, that this is what the enemy hates most. Consider two proofs, just two. Proof number one is the old Egypt. Proof number one is the old Egypt. Back in Exodus 1-7, 
The children of Israel grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them, 2.5 million strong. Why was Egypt threatened by that? Well, they were not keeping up with Israel's population growth. They actually, they were not fulfilling the cultural mandate. Look at verse 9. Pharaoh says, uh, behold, the people of Israel are too many. They're too mighty for us. In the history of the world, nations uh, who do not follow the Lord, if they last long enough, they always have declining and declining and declining and reduced birth rates so that the next generation will not um, fill the bucket for the previous one. I, I, I lost words. Um, but Israel was developing this alternative culture, a culture that was built on, on God's covenant, and it threatened Egypt's existence. So what did Egypt do? Pharaoh killed, uh, Pharaoh enslaved them, and he killed their male babies. Fulfilling the cultural mandate always brings persecution from the world. The enemy hates it because his seed, the seed of the serpent, is threatened when God's people are fruitful and multiply. That's proof number one, the old Egypt. Now let's take you to proof number two, which is the new Egypt. What's the new Egypt? Well, it is the leftist culture of death that we see today. Consider the main weapons of the new Egypt. Abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, and pornography. Now, what do those four things have in common? All four of them wage war against the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Abortion murders babies. Homosexuality, by definition, cannot produce babies. Transgenderism sterilizes people, making them unable to have babies. And pornography offers fantasy sex without the baggage of having babies. All of these are destroyers of families. Beloved, most of, uh, many of the capital um, punishments in the Old Testament, God leveled against crimes that were specifically family-destroying crimes. The enemy's aim in the new Egypt, is to undo God's command to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion. As one author said, the spirit of Pharaoh is very much alive today. That's our doctrine. When people, when God's people are fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, they give birth to an alternative culture, a culture built on the covenant of grace. And this always invites hatred and persecution from the enemy. So let's now move to our duty. And our first duty is simply to answer an objection. So somebody might say, Pastor Josh, why are you talking about Christians giving birth to an alternative culture? That's not our task. Our task is simply to preach the gospel. 
I want you to be aware, dear congregation, that there is a battle for the heart of evangelicalism today, just like there's a battle in every single generation. Essentially, there are three groups that are engaged in this battle. The first group are the liberal evangelicals who are advocating for things like social justice and wokeness. Those are easy to say, okay, we're not, we're not there, that's wrong. Second group is the group of evangelicals who have privatized their faith to within the four walls of the church. They have surrendered their prophetic voice to the culture, just like the Lutherans did in Hitler's time. The third group are the evangelicals who see that God is still calling us to this mandate, to be fruitful, to multiply, to exercise dominion, that Christ uh, would be Lord over all parts of life with no neutral territory. Now, this second group is the group that, that brings the objection, the ones who privatize their faith. They say, why are you talking about Christians giving birth to an alternative culture? That's not our task. Our task is simply to preach the gospel. So how do we answer that objection? Well, by realizing that when the gospel is rightly preached, it includes a transformation of culture. The gospel always accomplishes two things, always. It, number one, creates life. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And number two, the gospel cultivates that life. You see the same two things from the cultural mandate. Um, we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So God created and cultivated the world in Genesis 1, and that's precisely what God does with the gospel. Listen to how Wayne Grudem puts it. Yes, forgiveness of sins is the only way that people's hearts will be truly transformed. But forgiveness of sins is not the only message of the gospel. This is because Jesus is looking for transformed lives and through them a transformed world. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus appeared to save the lost and he appeared to destroy the works of the devil, both things. The good news of the gospel will result in changed lives, but Jesus wants that to result in changed families as well. And when the gospel changes lives, it should also result in changed neighborhoods and changed schools and changed businesses and changed societies and changed governments. End quote. Beloved, it is a form of Gnosticism to believe that God only cares about our souls, only the spiritual part of us, but he doesn't care about the culture around us, the physical world. The Israelites were not simply to teach their children to trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and then say, well, then go, go uh, live like Egyptians. No, they, they were to bring all things, every square inch, as Kuiper said, under his lordship. So the gospel does not nullify the cultural mandate. It empowers it. It is the one thing that can create, and it is the one thing that can cultivate, and nothing else can. 
Our second duty is that we need to prepare ourselves. The more faithful that we are at this task, the more that we're going to be hated. Egypt's response to Israel here is a paradigm for every age of the church. Remember, God had had promised there would be enmity between the two seeds, and we are deceiving ourselves that if, if we're just winsome enough with the world, that the world will be reasonable. If we are seeking the respectability of Egypt, we're not going to be faithful in this task. Fulfilling the cultural mandate always, always, always brings persecution. That brings us to our third duty, which is um, examination. So let's examine ourselves. As I said before, baby creating and baby cultivating is the essential building block of culture. So let's ask ourselves. Here's the first question. How do you view big families? How do you view families with lots of children? What's your gut level reflex? And I'm not trying to pretend that we all have the same gut level reflex. But I've lived in Idaho my whole life. And I'll tell you what my response was for a long time. When I saw a big family, I would say, oh, they must be Mormon. Having multiple children is seen as strange, perhaps even cultic in our culture. And that has seeped into the church culture. You... You know where that thing comes from, right, is the thing we typically say after like five or six or seventh child shows up. You know where that thing comes from, right? Because we're a little nervous that they just keep on popping out babies. Is that how you view big families? And this is important for every one of us, whether... Whether, wherever we're at on the spectrum because it's important for Christians to view it the way that the Bible views it so that we can inform others. How do you view big families? Some of us are past our child-rearing years, but for those of you who are not, what has informed your mind on how many kids that you should have? Are you listening to Pharaoh or are you listening to God? Um. Now, look, there, there can be multiple legitimate reasons for why parents only have a small number of kids, multiple legitimate reasons. But I want to address one. If your reason is that you're, you're frightened over finances, how are you going to provide for your children? Then let me just tell you that God is faithful. He's a faithful God. My grandpa, uh, my mom's dad, he had, him and my grandma, mostly my grandma, had, um, had uh, 13 children, 13 children, and he wasn't Mormon. And um, the only time that I talked to him about the number of children that he had, he was overflowing with the faithfulness of God. He said, with each kid, God would give him a promotion or a new job or something to increase his income to care for his children. 
Beloved, why wouldn't God do that? These are his covenant children. It's like Israel's experience with the manna in the wilderness. Exodus 16, 18 says, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. God knows the exact amount of manna that we need for our families. So never let finances be uh, uh, an obstacle to being fruitful and multiplying. The psalmist says, I've been young and now I am old, but I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. second examination question is this, are we cultivating the children that we have? If God stopped at creation, all all that there would be would be uh, an earth that was void and formless. That's what verses 1 and 2 says. No, it took his cultivating to make, uh, separate light from darkness, day from night, sea from land. And it's not enough just to create babies. We have to cultivate them. So are you discipling them and nurturing them in in the covenant? Or are you letting Egypt raise them? Will, Will we be able to hand off this church to the likes of children like ours when we die? Now, look, I'm, I'm a Calvinist to the bone, so I know that God must give the increase. But what is our job? Our job is to plant the seed and to water and to till the earth. So those are our three duties. Number one, we cannot divorce the gospel from cultural transformation. The Son of Man came to save the lost, Mark 10, 45, and... He came to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3. Number two, we must prepare ourselves to be hated by the world as we exercise fruitfulness and dominion. And then number three, we must examine our attitudes of fruitful wombs and examine how we are cultivating our own children's souls. So let's finally turn to our delight. said multiple times that the fruitfulness of Israel grew exceedingly to 2.5 million people. But there's actually more to the story than that. I actually misspoke last week when I said that the Israelites were in Egypt for 430 years. It's true that they were afflicted for 430 years, but they weren't in Egypt that long. Galatians 3.17 tells us, Paul tells us, that from the time that God gave the covenant with Abraham, Genesis 15, to the time that God gave them the law on Mount Sinai, when they left Exodus, was 430 years total. In other words, the 430-year clock started ticking in Genesis 15. If you're curious how that works out, come talk to me afterward or email me. So how long was Israel in Egypt total? They were in Egypt total only 215 years. From Genesis 15 to Exodus 1 is 215 years, and then from Exodus 1 to their departure was 215 years. Now, why in the world does that matter? Because Israel's birth rate cannot account 
for that type of growth. They grew from an estimated 10,000 people to 2.5 million people in 215 years. What accounts for that type of inconceivable growth? Conversions. Conversions. There were conversions to ancient Judaism from the very beginning. Abraham only had one son, Isaac, who was the child of the promise. But he had 318 fighting men in his home who didn't belong to his loins, and they were part of the covenant. They were circumcised. They were brought into the faith, Genesis 14, 14. So when Israel was in Goshen, Egypt, God must have converted thousands upon thousands of Egyptians to the faith. They became Hebrew by circumcision. In fact, when Israel left Egypt, there was a multitude of Egyptians that left with them. In Exodus 12, 37, it tells us 600,000 men besides women and children who went from Ramses to Succoth. But then it says in verse 38 that a mixed multitude also went with them. This means that there were Egyptians who were saying, you know what, we're not circumcised yet, but we need to get the heck out of Egypt. We, we believe in your God. How is this our delight? It's our delight, beloved, because God is the one that's giving the growth. God is the one that's giving the growth. He's the one who's opening wounds. He's the one who's converting hearts. All, all this talk about the, uh, the, the fulfilling the cultural mandate, I don't take back one word of it, but you need to hear this, that it ultimately doesn't depend upon us. It depends upon the covenant God. Genesis 17, 6 says, I will make you exceedingly faithful and I will make you into nations and kings will come from you. Psalm 105, 8 says, he remembers his covenant forever, the word that he has commanded for a thousand generations. And beloved, that's the promise that God has for us today. Consider, when Exodus 1 began, there was only 10,000 people on the planet who belonged to God. Now, today, 2022, there are 2.6 billion Christians. Is God's cultural mandate working? Yes. And do you know why it's working? Because he sent his son into the world to live the perfect life that we needed to live, to die the death that we deserved to die. And then on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And that's what brings in multitudes, multitudes. That's what gives us the victory. He died and rose in order to bring many sons to glory, Hebrews 2.10. And so, beloved, rest knowing that the battle for Middle Earth has already been won. Christ, the second Adam, came and fulfilled what Adam failed to do, what Israel failed to do, what you and I have failed to do, Jesus accomplished. And he is still being fruitful, and he is still multiplying, and he is still having dominion on the earth, and nothing can stop him. So, loved ones, let me finish with this exhortation. Create babies. Cultivate their hearts in the grace of Christ. Be fruitful, multiply. He has already promised to bless a thousand generations and his promises cannot fail. Let's pray. Father, we know.